0: Starting a new series this morning for the Book of Esther. It's called Wonder Woman. And I think, given the cultural moment that we were that we are in, in which powerful men are being outed for the way that they have treated women, I think Esther is the perfect book for this moment. It's a true story about a woman who, in many ways, really was a superhero, who, at great risk to her own life, stepped in and saved the day. A real-life Wonder Woman. If you love slapstick humor, if you love beautiful irony, if you love love edge-of-your-seat drama, you're going to love the book of Esther because it is all of that and more, and it's written by a master of subtlety and irony. Now, if you don't fit into any of those categories, like if you don't, you know, if you're not one of those people that loves slapstick humor, beautiful irony, edge-of-the-seat drama, I can't help you. It's going to be a long six weeks for you, but for the rest of you, I think you're going to love The book of Esther. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Esther chapter 1 in the Old Testament. Esther chapter 1. And if you have never read or studied Esther, as I said, I think you're in for a a treat. Without question, this is my favorite book of the Bible. Now, some of you have heard me preach on Esther before in another place and another time. Uh, I think you'll hear some new insights into this book as well as be reminded of some past insights. And then those of you who've never uh, had the opportunity to go through the book of Esther, I'm really excited for you to have the opportunity to be exposed to this fascinating book. I want to uh, jump in and start reading from verse 1. Esther chapter 1, Old Testament. Here we go. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Now, two quick things before we go on. First, some of your Bibles probably read King Ahasuerus instead of Xerxes. I want you to know it's the same guy. Ahasuerus was the Babylonian Persian name, his Babylonian and Persian name. Xerxes was how that was translated into Greek. So we're talking about the same guy, all right? Second, anyone here... Uh, Anyone here see the movie 300? Anybody here ever see that? Okay, you remember the king in that movie was Xerxes. That is this Xerxes. 300 Spartans battle the Persian army of over 300,000 soldiers. That's this Xerxes that we're talking about right here. All right, verse 3. At that time... King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Any of you guys remember the old uh, MTV show called Cribs? I don't know, maybe it's still on, but anybody remember Cribs? Okay, what they would do in the show, if if you're not familiar with it, they would tour celebrities' homes, and the celebrity de jour would show off their home and all of the expensive and all of the outlandish stuff that was inside of it. Well, that's what's happening here. Xerxes is three years into his reign. It's taken him that long to consolidate the empire and to stamp out revolts that were happening in Egypt and in Babylon. But now he puts on a six-month open house to show off his palace and all of its opulence. And he opens all the storerooms of wealth to anybody that was anybody in the Persian Empire. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do something like that? Well, historians speculate that this was intended to be a pep rally of sorts, uh, in which Xerxes could shore up support for a coming war with the Greeks. He wants the leaders of Persia to see how powerful and how mighty he is so that they will submit to and support his leadership in the coming war. Now, historians may be right about that. But I want to ask you a question. What does it say about a king who feels that the only way... He's a king. He's a king. What does it say about a king who feels that the only way he can impress his own subjects enough to follow him into war is to show off his wealth? feels like maybe he's, just maybe he's terribly insecure about himself and about his power. Like he needs, he needs all of that to validate him, right? And I think you're going to see that as we go on. To cap off the six-month gaudy display of wealth, Xerxes throws a massive party. It is the mother of all parties. Look at verse 5. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. Now skip down to verse 7. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all of the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished." Okay, so this was a blowout party. Like the regular people were probably cordoned off from the VIPs. VIPs arrived in limos, walked a red carpet where they would stop and sign autographs and pose them. For pictures by the paparazzi, helicopters flying overhead in the hopes of getting a picture thumping music so loud that you could feel it in your chest. Every kind of food imaginable. And the text says that the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. In other words, there was an open bar. All you can drink, man. This was like like an all-inclusive resort. He throws this huge party. Now watch what happens next. Author of this book. The author of this book is so clever. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Wait. Wait a second. That's that's it? Eight verses on the king's party and only one little verse on the queen's party? Do you see how clever the author is here? On the surface, it appears that all the author is doing is describing the enormity of the king's open house and the party. But if you wanted to convey, if you wanted to convey... That the king was incredibly self-centered, and that women were second-class, unimportant citizens to him, but you didn't want to just come out and say it, wouldn't this be a clever way to do it? To spend eight verses describing the king's party, and one small little verse about the queen. Okay, so here's where things start to get dicey. Now, I want you to think about something. All the men are having a party over here, and the women are having a separate party over here, at least the wives. It's probably not too much of a stretch to think that over here in the men's party, that there were unmarried, beautiful Persian girls, or maybe they were even part of the king's harem that were at the men's party. In fact, this was probably an orgy the text doesn't say that specifically. Seven days into the partying, look at what verse 10 says. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded, and there's a long list of really weird names here. I'm going to try to pronounce them. Mihuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas. How's that? Does that sound pretty good? All right. Nobody knows how to pronounce that. I'm just giving it a shot here. Uh, He commanded these guys to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her crown in order to, to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. In other words, she's Miss Persia, she's gorgeous. She's a knockout. But the author's already given us a clue, hasn't he, about how Xerxes feels about her. She's an afterthought to him. She's his trophy wife. So here is this king who not only needs to display his wealth to validate himself and to give himself credibility, but now he wants to show his trophy wife off to the men around him for the same reason. And by the way, many commentators believe that this command to wear her crown was a command to wear nothing but her crown. In other words, to come in naked. Because you see, what would be more humiliating than wearing the symbol of the queen, the crown, but stripped naked for other men to leer at? What kind of man... Needs that validation from other men. What kind of man treats his queen like that? Who needs a trophy wife to give him credibility? What kind of man needs that? You're going to see in a minute. Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Vashti has such little respect for Xerxes and so much respect for herself that she refuses to be treated like that. She's probably sick of his narcissism, probably sick of his constant need for validation. She's had enough and she's like, "Uh uh-uh, I am not doing that. And yay for Vashti, by the way, for having enough dignity to say, I will not be treated like that by any man, even if he's the king. Anyway, let's go on. The king's response. Then the king became furious and he burned with anger. This is beautiful. Here's this insecure king trying to show off for all of his employees and all of his subjects and all of the aristocracy around him. And his wife says, no, I'm not coming in. Oh, the irony. He was going to humiliate her, but she ends up humiliating him. And here's some delicious irony as well. Do you remember who, uh, the men whom the king sent to command the queen to come? Remember I read that long list of names. Okay. Some translations refer to them as being eunuchs. Now you know what a eunuch is, right? Okay. A eunuch is a man who's been castrated. He's been emasculated. And the very purpose of that was so that they wouldn't be tempted to take advantage of the king's wife and his harem. All right? But here's the irony. The author is really posing the question, who looks like the eunuch now? How about a king who thinks he's in control, but his own wife doesn't respect him? See the irony? And he's furious about it. Now now listen, if you're a noble king, if you're comfortable in your own skin, and your wife flat out refuses your request, what would you do? Well, you would go to the queen personally, you would have a conversation with her, and you'd find out what's wrong. Hey, honey, I wanted you to do this, why, why, why does that not feel right to you? Why don't you want to do it, okay? But that's not who Xerxes is. So what does he do? Well, verses 13 and 14 tell us that he summons some of his advisors. And he asks them in verse 15, according to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes. By the way, don't you hate it when someone refers to themselves in the third person? Like they've got such a big ego that they they refer to themselves in the third person. That's what he does here. I can imagine going home and telling my wife, Pastor Jeff wants dinner. And she would say, Pastor Jeff can cook dinner if he wants it. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs, that's another jab at Xerxes by the author, that the eunuchs have taken to her. See, he doesn't go to his wife. Instead, he goes to his legal team, which judging by what happens next, his legal team seems as clueless about women as a bunch of frat boys. Not one of them says, not one of these guys says, well, why don't you go talk to her? Instead, and I kid you not, they are all scared to death. Look at verse, uh, skip down to verse 18. Verse 18, this very day, the Persian and Median women uh, of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Like there's going to be a revolt. There'll be no end to it. The women might start to think for themselves, we can't let this happen. If we don't stop this now, they're going to want to vote. And then they'll want to go to work. They'll want equal pay. And then who's going to cook and clean and do our laundry and bear our children? I love this last sentence. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. This is hysterical. And it gets gets even better. In verse 19, their brilliant advice is for the king to issue an edict... That Vashti should never again be allowed to come into the presence of the king, and that her position be given to another woman, which, by the way, sets the stage for the rest of the book. But notice what it says in verse 20. They say, you know, so they've, they've said, you know, she can't be allowed to come into your presence anymore, okay? Then, verse 20, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of his vast realm, All the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Because there's nothing that gets a wife's respect like an insecure husband issuing an edict that his fraternity brothers put him up to. Right, ladies? Like, listen, honey, the guys thought I should come and tell you that you shall be banished from my presence unless you obey me. Is that okay with you, baby? But Xerxes thinks this is a terrific idea. Verse 22. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in his own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Which begs the question, if the king, who really isn't a ruler of his own household, we've already seen that, if he has to issue an edict that the men are to be rulers in the households, are they really rulers in their households? Really? By the way, this is what every woman wants isn't it, ladies? A man who declares himself ruler in his home. That one who leads his family with humility and sacrifice and by those traits wins the heart of his family and the right to lead his family. No, every lady wants a man who issues an edict that he is the ruler. Aren't I right about that, ladies? This is great stuff, and you just get the feeling that the author is snickering as he writes this. Just like underneath the surface, as he's writing this, he's just snickering at the king. Now the question is, what does this have to do with anything? And in in, in the moments that I've got left, here's what I want to do. I want to make two quick points, just two quick points about this passage. And here's the first one that I want to make. As goes the gospel in any culture, so goes the treatment of women. As goes the gospel in any culture, so goes the treatment of women. And let me just explain uh, what I mean. Uh, I've said this before, but we are in a unique cultural moment, aren't we? Like the hashtag Me movement has forced out from behind their veils many of the wizards who pull the levers of some of our most... Influential cultural institutions. Or if they don't pull the levers themselves, they represent those institutions. And many of these men and the institutions they lead have positioned themselves as sophisticated, elite, progressive supporters of women and women's causes. And I want to just say, many of them have done so at the expense of Christianity, Repeatedly portraying Christianity as patriarchal and oppressive to women and regressive as it relates to women's causes. Case in point. Anyone read the book or have you seen the Hulu series uh, The Handmaid's Tale? Won a bunch of Golden Globes the other night. None of you raised your hands. Anything I ask. Do you, Have you seen this? Okay, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, the storyline behind, behind The Handmaid's Tale is that a group of patriarchal, Bible-thumping Christian men have overthrown the United States government and set up a Christian theonomy that subjugates women and endorses misogyny. Because, of course, that's what Christianity is about, right? And here's the thing. Among most middle-aged and younger women today, that idea is accepted as fact and goes largely unchallenged. And Hollywood and the media and the marketplace are seen as heroic in their support of women's causes. Except, it turns out, that many of the men in and behind these institutions aren't the sophisticated, elite, progressive supporters of women they claim to be. Instead, many of them are just creepy perverts. Who, sure, they often hired women, gave them job opportunities, but then they used their power and influence to sexually harass, intimidate, humiliate, assault, and even rape them. And some of them were protected by a boys-will-be-boys culture. Now, how different, ladies... How different, ladies, is Xerxes and the pagan culture of ancient Persia from modern-day American culture, really? At, at least as it relates to the objectification and degradation of women. How different is it, really? See, see if any of this sounds familiar. I, I, could, I counted at least five things that I think are similar. There may be more. But let me just see if, these, any, of the, if any of these sound familiar to you. First, women are relegated to second-class citizens. Sound familiar? A woman, Vashti, is valued only for her beauty. No mention is made here of Vashti's intelligence or her class or her sophistication or her personality or anything else. Just her beauty. Third, a woman, Vashti, is subjected to the male gaze, as it's it's often put. Four, a woman, Vashti, is told to degrade herself by taking off her clothes so that men can ogle her. Does that sound familiar? Fifth, women throughout the Persian Empire are coerced into cooperation by powerful men. Intimidated into cooperation by powerful men. Any of that sound familiar to you? I mean, really, how different is American culture today in its objectification and treatment of women than it was in ancient Persia under Xerxes. Ladies, you need to understand that as goes the gospel in a culture, so goes the treatment of women. Do you know why? Two reasons. One, because men without the gospel have no greater beauty to behold than the female form. And second, sexual pleasure is as close to heaven as men without the gospel are ever going to get. They have no greater hope. On the other hand, long before the feminist movement ever began, Christianity was the most countercultural and progressive force for women's rights and dignity in the world, and it still is. Ancient cultures, like our culture today, said about men, essentially, boys will be boys. You can't change them. Let their sexual desire run free, which made women fair game for sexual predation, sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual manipulation, prostitution, unwanted pregnancy, poverty, not to mention the emotional heartbreak of realizing that they've been used by a man for his sexual pleasure, like a piece of meat. Christianity, you see, was countercultural. It was radical. It was progressive in that it channeled male sexual desire into marriage as the only acceptable outlet for it, elevating the status of women and protecting them from sexual, predatory, and manipulative behavior. See, the gospel said male sexual desire can be channeled. The gospel pronounced the end of the boys will be boys club. The gospel said in a culture that despised and used women, that women have dignity and honor and should be treated as such. The gospel gave men an experience of beauty in Jesus that was far more beautiful than even the female body. And the gospel gave men a greater hope to live for than mere sexual pleasure. And so Christianity, ladies, has always been progressive in its view and its treatment of women. You need to know that. You need to stop believing the lie that Christianity is somehow your enemy and that Hollywood, the media, and the marketplace are all your best friends. As goes the gospel in any culture, whether it's American culture, whether it's the culture of the place that you work, whether it's the culture of a city, as goes the gospel, so goes the treatment of women. Now, yeah, I, I'm going to, let's, let's just all acknowledge there are bad churches out there who use the Bible wrongly, to justify Neanderthal behavior toward women. There are those churches. Maybe you've been a part of those. I want you to understand, that's not Christianity. That's just an ignorant church. Only Christianity gives women the dignity and the honor that women were created for. And so again, as goes the gospel in any culture, so goes the treatment of women. And men, men. If you have believed in Christ, if the power of the gospel has reached into your life and is beginning to change you, let it also change the way that you treat women, the way that you treat them at work, the way that you treat them at home, the way that you treat them in the community with the dignity and the honor that they were created for. Husbands, there is no justification in the Bible for dominating, demeaning, controlling, demanding behavior in the home, none. Serve your wife. Be a sacrificial lover in everything from the things you say to her to how you use your time and your emotional energy. And yes, even to the manner in which you are physically intimate with your wife. Put her first even in your sexual intimacy. And young men, I'm just going to say this. Because it has to be said, your standard operating procedure, young husbands, as it comes to physical intimacy with your wife, should always be that your wife goes first. Now, you know what I mean. I'm not going to spell that out. But that should always be your standard operating procedure. Because listen to me, listen to me. Young husbands to be used as an as a as nothing but a vessel for your sexual satisfaction is demeaning, degrading, and humiliating, and no wife should ever have to put up with that. So you see. Be a sacrificial lover, even in the way that you approach physical intimacy. And listen, you know, you complain, you you guys, I mean, you know, like you want more sex in your marriage. I get that. I'm going to tell you, put your wife first. She goes first. And I'm going to tell you, there's a great chance that what you want is going to, ha- is going to happen. Okay? If you don't, there's a great chance that you're going to complain about sex for the rest of your marriage. Men, understand something. It's on us. It's on us, men, to show the culture that it's only in the kingdom of God that women are treated by men with the honor and the dignity that they were created for. It's on us. That's our responsibility as men whom the gospel has affected and penetrated. And if the gospel is affecting you, if the gospel has changed you, if it's reached into your life, today is the day to make a resolution to yourself that I'm going to do everything I can to treat women with the honor and the dignity that they deserve. Because it's on us to show the culture that as the gospel goes in any culture, so goes the treatment of women. All right. Last thing, last point I want to make here. This passage really is the tale of two kings. And you're like, well, I only see one king here. Well, I want you to remember that everything in the Bible is there to teach us about Jesus. Everything. And so in this passage, you have this king, Xerxes. He uses his wealth for his own glory. He shows it off for everyone to see. He uses it to bring him honor. He uses it to impress people, to gain power. He uses it to humiliate his wife, maybe even to the point of demanding that she strip naked from men to ogle. But even as we read about Xerxes, our minds should be thinking about another king. Because again, everything in the Bible here is to teach us about this other king. This king had all of the glory and the majesty in the universe, but he gave his glory up on a Roman cross so that we could be clothed in his glory. This king would use his power to rescue his people, not to impress people. This king would use his power to restore dignity to women and men, the dignity that sin and the world had stolen from them. And this king would be hung naked with only a crown on his head and looked on by every man, woman, and child in Jerusalem so that we would never have to endure God's wrath for our sin. Who is that king? Hey, who is that king? That's right, that king is Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus is both the author and the perfecter, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, for those of you who are here today who've never believed in Jesus, He is the author of our faith in that it is the spectacular beauty of his life and his sacrificial death in which you must believe. If you want a beauty to live for that is greater than any the world has to offer, have you believed? What other king would subject himself to such undeserved cruelty, to suffering even to the point of death for his subjects? He did it because you and I are sinful. We're sinners. And we needed someone to die to sacrifice themselves for our sins. Jesus, the king, did that. What other king would do something like that? Take that into your heart this morning and believe upon Jesus. For those of you who have believed in Jesus already, the fact that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith means that he is the one who gives you the power to live a life of sacrificial beauty. So you don't have to work that up in your flesh. This love for women, the way treating women with dignity and honor, you don't have to work that up. You can rest in the power of Jesus and depend upon his power and his power alone to give you that love for women. That respect for women. Jesus is not only the standard by which women are to be treated, but he is also the power inside of us men to treat them in that way. In another church, uh, in another church a long time ago, I used to begin every service with this saying because I wanted people to understand the gospel. I would start it like this. Every service, I'd say, Christ died for me to give his life to me, to live his life through me. He is not only the author, but he is the perfecter of our faith. And so, man, we can draw upon his power to treat our wives and to treat women with the honor and the dignity that they were created for. And ladies, last thing I want to say for you. That's what you should expect. That's what you should expect single young ladies today. If a man doesn't treat you, if a young man, a man doesn't treat you with respect and honor and dignity, it's the wrong man for you. This is why it's so important, ladies, that you you marry men who know the gospel of Jesus Christ and who've believed on it because as goes the gospel in any culture, so goes the treatment of women. Only the gospel gives men a beauty to live for and a hope to live for that is greater than even the beauty of the female form. Would you pray with me?